You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio. 89.7 WGLS-FM. Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM presents Stand with Candace Kelly. This show takes a look at social justice issues impacting society. Here's your host, Rowan University professor Candace Kelly. Jay-Z is backing a new law that limits the use of rap lyrics against defendants in criminal trials. Meek Mill, Robin Thicke, Big Sean, Fat Joe, Killer Mike, and Kelly Rowland all signed a letter supporting a bill proposed in New York titled Rap Music on Trial. If passed, the law will go on the books and it requires prosecutors to provide clear and convincing evidence that a defendant's lyrics are an admission of an actual crime rather than a product of creative expression. I'm joined by Eric Nielsen. He is co-author of the book Rap on Trial. Nielsen has worked as an expert on some 50 criminal cases involving rap music as evidence, and he's taking a stand. So we're talking to him about rap music, the criminal justice system, how the lyrics of rap music find their way into the courtroom and why they should be kept out. Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Can you just contextualize how rap is used in the court system? I mean, we just saw a Super Bowl halftime show that broke ratings records. Most of the performers were rap artists. But how would you, you frame it for people who don't understand stand how courts look at rap and rap lyrics used as evidence? Right. Well, and I think you're right to point out that that rap music has become so mainstream and influential. Uh, this practice is really hard to fathom, but it's it's commonplace. So what we see are, are there are a few different ways that police and prosecutors will use a person's rap lyrics against him. And I say him because this is almost excu- exclusively um, young men. Uh, they, they will, they will take lyrics and if say, um, there's a crime, say a shooting and they find lyrics, um, they can't, that, that describe shooting. Um, they will argue either that this was a confession if the lyrics were written after the, the crime or that they will, they will argue that these lyrics are, um, reflective of the defendant's mind state associations, motive, that type of thing. So most, most of the cases we're seeing rap music is used to connect um, a defendant to some underlying crime, though we also are seeing more instances where rap lyrics are themselves the crime um, charged as true threats. So most of the cases connected to an underlying crime, smaller subset of cases where the lyrics themselves are punished. You know, I'm wondering, when we look at music overall, there are many types of lyrics that are out there, whether it's country, whether it's blues, whether it's rock, right? Um, We know that some of those lyrics can be very suspect and questionable. Why rap specifically taking over this whole idea of using creative expression inside of a courtroom? Why rap and not other genres? Well, that's right. It's not the, no other musical genre, but really no other fictional genre uh, is targeted the way that rap music is. And it, it's it's kind of an unavoidable conclusion that one of the primary reasons um, is the artists themselves. Um, this is almost exclusively uh, black and Hispanic men who are being targeted. And um, it, it, it's a practice that prosecutors use, I think, 
sometimes intentionally, perhaps unintentionally, but to play upon and perpetuate, you know, enduring stereotypes about the criminality of these young men. And so they do it. They use these lyrics, specifically rap music, uh, because the practice is very effective. It is a good way if you are a prosecutor to secure a conviction, even if you don't really have a whole lot of under, uh, you know, other relevant evidence. And so, you know, it, it is it is a sort of a, an extension of the types of inequalities we see throughout the criminal justice system. Uh, and, you know, and we know that for as long as there's been hip hop, you know, rap music, um, there has been a backlash um, against it. And so I think we're also seeing some of that um, at play as well. You know, these days you can turn on a commercial and you can see rap music and endorsement of sneakers or soda Mm -hmm. or laundry detergent. So are you telling me that even today in 2022 that things haven't changed much or or have you seen a change, especially because of your work? And as I talked about at the talk of the show, different people recognizing in terms of legislators that something needs to be done. Well, let me put it in in context for you, you know, um, and this sort of speaks to your previous question, but also this one, you know, in in 1999, um, a social psychologist named Carrie Freed carried out a study where she took some lyrics, some violent lyrics from a folk song, just printed them out on the paper, did not put any information identifying the genre these lyrics came from, the name of the artist, just lyrics on a page. And she divided her test subjects into two groups. And she told one group that these lyrics came from a country song. And she told the, another group that these exact same lyrics came from a rap song. And when she measured their responses, the group that believed that they came from a rap song found them far more threatening and in need of regulation than ones that they thought were country lyrics. That was 1999. Well, 2016, researchers at the University of California at Irvine reproduced her study to see, to see, you know, does this still, do we still see this? And they got the exact same conclusion nearly 20 years later. So it is difficult to understand why, because, you know, rap music has become so mainstream how we're seeing this, but it is in fact getting worse over time, not better. And I I think one of the explanations for that is that although it has become mainstream for some people, I think that may also be threatening right now. It's everywhere. It's Mm -hmm. pervasive. You can't get away from it. It's not subcultural by any stretch anymore. It's not confined to particular groups. It's, it's everywhere. And I think for some people, um, that is itself threatening and part of the reason why we're seeing this problem, you know, proliferate. And, well, and, and let's face it, Eric, there are people who are mad about the Super Bowl. They didn't want to see that at all. Absolutely. And that's shocking because it was really a fantastic performance. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, I take it naturally that you like rap. <laughs> yep, and it sure was do. it really was quite a performance. It, it it really was something just just visually and content wise. I, I'm wondering, how did you come to make this your field of research and put all of this together so people could understand how creative expression was being used against them? Well, you know, my 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 work and my research really looks at the relationship between um, black expression, particularly um, creative expression uh, and the law in the United States, going back to the antebellum South all the way to present day. And so that sort of laid the foundation. And then really coming to this particular topic was was accidental. I, 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 I stumbled across some work that a professor at the University uh, of Manchester in the United Kingdom was doing. And it turns out that um, grime lyrics were being used against defendants in the UK. And so I thought to myself, well, if they're doing that in the UK, 
you know, I bet you we're doing that in the incarceration capital of the world. And so I started doing research and realized that there were all kinds of these cases. And I was, I was surprised that at the number of cases, but also at the fact that nobody else was talking about them. And so that, that sort of prompted me to start looking in far more depth. And then I understand that when you started calling people and doing research, especially attorneys who had represented some of these defendants, that they said, hey, you know what? You can actually help us by consulting us on this case, by being an expert witness in this case. And I'm wondering, what was that like? What it's like to be inside of a courtroom and testify on behalf of a defendant to say, hey, listen, just because they wrote about killing someone or, or, or carrying drugs, doesn't really mean that it was true and, and didn't kind of signify an intent or a motive. Well, I mean, the first time I testified, it, the experience was just terrifying. Yeah. I mean, you know, after you've watched enough law and order, you really don't want to be on the receiving end of a cross exam. Right. Um, but, but what I found was, you know, my training is in literature. And so it, I think that naturally lends itself to the kind of testimony that I offer in a courtroom setting where I really am trying to contextualize these lyrics, explain that what may seem shocking or inflammatory, you know, really amounts to genre convention, that it's really not that different. And in, in, in some cases is even less shocking than other genres that we all accept, you know, take horror movies, for example. Mm-hmm. And so really to talk about the creative tradition, you know, that gave rise to rap music um, and, and the sort of literary devices, but also explain that this is a, a multi-billion dollar industry that offers to these young men uh, a path for upward mobility, uh, especially when many of these young men come from communities where those pathways, those opportunities um, are few and far between. And so it's a combination of explaining the literary or the musical traditions, but also you know the socioeconomic conditions and the industry that's driving them to produce these kinds of lyrics. When you are on the stand, what types of questions on cross are you asked? <laughs> you know, most of the time they want me off the stand as quickly as possible. <laughs> Cause you're so, making too much sense, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and they know that they don't know as much about the genre as I do, or as any expert in my situation would. Um, but, but often, the, the if, a, if a prosecutor wants to sort of get, in, get into it with me, the way will usually be, you know, I've actually had prosecutors, you know, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, you know, years apart, each, of, each present me with the same uh, Jay-Z song. And they print it out, and, you know, and in the song, he offers uh, some significant autobiographical detail, his birthday, his parents' names. And so they'll say to me, well, is that true? Mm-hmm. And I'll say, okay, yeah, he was born that year. And so it's not fictional. And, and, and it would take that type of, uh, it, it would take that kind of angle. You know, my response in that situation is, well, first of all, you know, fiction, all fiction is rooted to some extent or another on people's lived experiences. Um, and it is, uh, and so it's not necessarily fair to cherry pick these details. You know, I, I liken you know, especially sort of gangster rap to historical fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, historical fiction is often set in, you know, a, a historical period that actually happened. The landmarks are, are reproduced uh, faithfully. Um, even some of the characters in the story may actually have existed in history. But laying on top of that sort of map is a whole set of stories that are made up. And that doesn't, and the fact that there are some details that map to reality does not make them 
any less fictional. And so that's the kind of, that's sort of the, that's the angle that I take if I'm challenged in that way. Yeah. I mean, if, if it were the case that we were to follow this idea that what people are writing about creatively is what they intend to do, well then, you know, Stephen King should be in hiding. Um, oh. <laughs> right. A lot of other people who write about very drastic, horrible things, they should be running from the law. And that's not the case. It really is just in the world of rap that this is happening. I wanted to talk about a letter that you co-authored that I actually made reference to during my introduction. In terms of this new law, talk to me about how this came about. Well, so um, uh, Andrea Dennis, who co-wrote the book with me, Rap on Trial, she and I, at the end of our book, offered up uh, a number of sort of next steps, you know, solutions to the problem or things that people can do. And one of the, the, the most, we thought at the time, radical suggestions was implementing something that we called a rap shield law. And that was really patterned after rape shield laws, which were introduced, you know, if someone accuses another person of sexual assault or rape, it, 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 these laws make it very difficult often to bring in, you know, any information about the accuser's past sexual history. Now, may, because even though it may have some slight probative value, you know, we know that it's so prejudicial um, that, that it, it really shouldn't be in front of a jury and that it really shouldn't, you know, impact their determination of, you know, what, what happened in this moment. So we made the same argument in our book about rap lyrics that they are, we know from empirical research that they are so inflammatory, so prejudicial that there should be particular, you know, there should be laws that make introducing them very difficult. And I, you know, the, the two senators from New York State um, I think working in conjunction with the Center for Appellate Litigation um, suggested that, yeah, perhaps maybe they could introduce a law that would, as you said at the top, uh, that would make, that would essentially shift the burden to prosecutors to show that, you know, introducing these lyrics is, you know, these lyrics are relevant and they are the only evidence possible, you know, to make whatever argument they're trying to make and that they have a very close connection to the crime and so forth. So, when we went, when I learned about the law, I reached out to Alex Spiro, who is um, the attorney for Rock Nation and Jay Z's attorney, and we had worked together in the past. And I said, "Hey, why don't we put together a letter of support?" We did this in conjunction with the senators, and then he sent it around, and yeah, all the all the folks you listed at the beginning uh, signed on, which was really encouraging. Has anybody reached out to you to maybe do the same thing? What is, what is the status? Would you say about this kind of taking shape in a new way across the country? This is New York. I know in New Jersey, they banned it. That's where I'm recording from now in terms of using rap and, uh, in trials, but what's the country looking like? Just to clarify in New Jersey, they haven't banned it, but what they did do is they made, they had a high profile reversal at the state Supreme court that basically said, you can do it. You can bring them in if there is a close factual nexus between the lyrics and the crime. So there's still plenty of room to introduce lyrics, even in places as forward thinking in this regard as New Jersey. Mm -hmm. um, we, we are working. Um, we have been approached uh, for work to do something similar in California, which has by far the greatest number of these cases. And there is work going on. I'm not involved personally, but there is work going on at the federal level as well. Um, I, I just recently talked to um, the, head, the head of advocacy uh, in D.C. for the recording industry, um, uh, the recording association, the, the folks who put on the Grammys. And I know that they are working at this 
uh, on this at the federal level as well. Eric Nielsen, co-author of the book, Rap on Trial. More with Mr. Nielsen when we come back. And I'm back with Eric Nielsen, co-author of the book, Rap on Trial. We're talking about how the lyrics of rap find their way into the courtroom and why they should be kept out. Eric, I know that there was a case or two that you wanted to highlight that really shows how rap lyrics can be used against someone. There are people who are behind bars thanks to lyrics that they have written as a creative expression. Yeah, I mean, and, and there are so so many cases, it's difficult to pick just one, but I will. Um, and this is a case of uh, McKinley Phipps, um, who rapped as Mac on Masterpiece No Limit label starting in the 1990s. Well, and, and, and was widely regarded as, you know, probably their top lyricist. And, you know, he was, he was on, on the way up for sure. Um, one night he gave a performance uh, outside New Orleans. Uh, there was a, a fight broke out. Uh, a young man was shot and killed. And the police targeted Mac for the crime. That's despite the fact that multiple eyewitnesses saw somebody else do it. Somebody else who matched those descriptions went to the police and confessed. Um, they still went after him, consistent with the sort of targeting of rappers on that label in that area and at the time. Well, fast forward to the court date, um, the prosecutor took lyrics of his from two different songs, spliced them together as if they came from the same song, hmm. altered the li- and then altered the lyrics in order to make him sound as threatening as possible. And again, there was, so, there was no real evidence that he was, uh, there was some eyewitness testimony that he did, he, he did commit the crime, but it turns out that all of those witnesses have since recanted saying that the prosecutors threatened them with jail time if they didn't finger him in the crime. Um, so he was sentenced uh, to 30 years on a 10 to two jury verdict. Um, and you know, that, which is now considered unconstitutional, but unfortunately that law does not necessarily apply retroactively. Um, and he served 21 of those years before last year, finally getting clemency from the governor of Louisiana. He is now out, he is performing again, but it is one of the most egregious examples of the misuse of rap as evidence that I have come across. Wow. And, you know, I want to point out that the club that he was where he was performing, his parents were there collecting, you know, money tickets at the door. I I mean, and something happened that had nothing to do with him and the gun that he had. He was licensed to carry it and he was using it for what it was created for to protect himself. And it was not, and it was definitively not used in the crime. Right. Uh, that gun. Yes, exactly. And you know, this is a kid who started, he was a, he was sort of a prodigy. He, he put out his first album at like 12 years old or something like that. He would read poetry at coffee shops. His parents, he comes from a family of artists. He was rapping the way he was because it was selling. No Limit at the time was, you know, taking in, you know, was hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, it was, it was a commercial endeavor for him that, you know, it ended up, you know, costing him 21 years of his life. You know, and I think that some people can remember um, back a few years ago, uh, the young man who was shot more than likely because his rap music was too loud at a gas station. Um, and there was Jordan Davis. Yes. Jordan Davis. Um, and I think that really does contextualize just how rap is perceived, especially in the backdrop of everything that's happened before George Floyd. And of course now, but just the threat of especially black men being in this industry. And like you said, you you mentioned no limit and master P this is someone who's worth now probably half a billion dollars. And he was able to buy a house next to the government 
governor from what I understand. <laughs> I think the optics of it, just on a sociological level, people just don't like to see that. Black men kind of climbing the ladder and expressing themselves with without limitations. Yeah, exactly. And we do see that. And that, you know, absolutely. It is that they see young black, young Latino men, you know, flouting convention in their lyrics, right? They're sort of doubling down on stereotypes that people may have of them and, and, and doing it in, in some cases gleefully. But that, and that to some people is so outrageously offensive that they have a vis- visceral reaction and that reaction is the reason why we don't want them in front of juries, you know, during somebody's trial, because they are, for some people anyway, so inflammatory that they cause people to act irrationally uh, about it. It plays on stereotypes that you find across the country. And I think one of them is that these young men, in the minds of some, um, are simply not smart enough, not sophisticated enough to actually be performing anything that would put amount to poetry. Um, and so because they're not bright enough, um, they must really just be chronicling their everyday criminal lives. Um, that to me, that is essentially, you know, it, 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 it denies rap music the status of art. Nobody's claiming that all rap music is beautiful art, but every, but I think we do have to understand that it is art. And I think at the heart of this is the desire, I think, uh, for, for, for some people to, to, you know, to deny it that status. We've had police say as much, you know, these guys aren't the brightest, you know, they're not making, they're they're not inventing anything here. They're just, it's easier for them to just say what they did. Mm. What's next? What's next for you in terms of the landscape and changing how evidence is treated in court when it comes to rap lyrics? Well, you know, I appreciate the question. I mean, obviously we hope to expand on our efforts in New York, and I know we touched on that, uh, both federally and in states across the country. Um, and I do think it's still a matter in some cases of education, right? Educating, whether it's jurors, but certainly prosecutors, certainly judges, um, about the sort of the highly prejudi- prejudicial nature of these lyrics and, and, and continuing to raise awareness. That's, you know, one of the reasons why I'm especially grateful to be on your show um, is it gives me an, you know, an opportunity to continue to spread the word because even after years of working on this, it's very common for me to tell people this is happening and they can't believe it. They've never heard this before. Mm-hmm. So I think that for, for us continuing to raise awareness is, you know, has to underpin whatever the rest of our efforts are legally, legislatively and so forth. And Eric Nielsen, I have to ask this question. I'll go first. I'm a lover Uh-oh. of Eric B. and Rakim and Wu-Tang Clan and Nas. They're all on my playlist when I exercise. Who are you liking these days? Or maybe who are you, some of your favorites just over the years in the world of rap? Well, I will say that what brought me back, what sort of brought me to this space um, was the early stuff coming out of the South, out of Atlanta. So Outcast and Goody Mob were really influential for me. Uh, and sticking with that Atlanta theme, not to, not to slight New York in the least, but I have to say, I have to say run the jewels and killer Mike because killer Mike has actually been um, a longtime friend and advocate on this issue. He's also a fantastic rapper, but I have to give him a shout out here for that. Yes. And in fact, I think he writes the preface to your book, correct? He did. All right. Well, listen, I just want to thank you so much. Again, as you said, this is a topic that not a lot of people know about. And so when we're out there enjoying the lyrics, and I mean, it really is just some amazing 
uh, uh, lyricism going on. Uh, when we yeah. enjoy, we also need to think about the other side of this, which often when we talk about people of color in this country, there is another side. So thank you for informing us about what's going on um, and how rap lyrics are being used as evidence. Oh, well, thank you for having me on the show. And again, you know, seeing value in, in discussing this issue. I really appreciate it. Yes, indeed. Eric Nielsen taking a stand. Quite enlightening. Good to have you. You've been listening to Stand with Candace Kelly. Please join us Saturday morning at 830 for another episode on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM and by searching for Rowan Radio on your favorite podcasting platform.